You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We're going to start with some big developments in an Amber Alert issued more than 24 hours ago for two missing children. RCMP are releasing new images that show the last known sightings of Aurora and Joshua. Troy Charles joins us from Surrey RCMP headquarters and Troy, the whole province is on the lookout. Yeah, Sophie, some new information released by RCMP today concerning, regarding this concerning Amber Alert. We now know the children traveling with two additional males, one being the mother's boyfriend and the other her father. Also, an update on the children's last confirmed sighting. The, the children were seen um, in Merritt on July 7th in the company of the mother, two males, and at that time, uh, the pickup truck was towing a large travel trailer. RCMP just released surveillance photos showing eight-year-old Aurora and 10-year-old Joshua Bolton entering a Merritt gas station on July 7th. Surveillance also showing that the group was traveling with a large travel trailer. The children have been in the company of their mother since June 28th when they left Surrey on a planned vacation. RCMP say they were supposed to be returned to their father, who has primary custody, on July 17th, but they were not and no one has been able to make contact with them since. Their mother, Verity, last seen grocery shopping in Kamloops on July 15th, has long hair, usually in a ponytail, weighs about 120 pounds and has brown hair and brown eyes. Investigators also released a new photo of a truck they are believed to be traveling in, which could be towing a horse utility style trailer. The truck is a dark blue 2012 Dodge Ram 2500 with the BC license plate SJ2708. And the RCMP wanting to remind the public they do believe the children are in imminent danger because of the mother's recent mental health issues. Also, RCMP releasing a statement from or relaying a statement from the children's immediate family saying we ask everyone if they could continue to be vigilant in looking for Josh and Aurora, who we miss greatly and hope they will be returned home safe very soon. Back to you. All right. Thanks for that. Troy Charles reporting at Surrey RCMP headquarters. Now, as the worst wildfire season this province has ever seen continues, the number of hectares burned will likely far exceed the nearly 1.5 million already scorched since April. Hundreds of firefighters are arriving from outside this province to help. But as Aaron MacArthur reports, with little rain in the forecast, many areas remain at high risk. The smoke sits thick over Cranbrook Thursday. The St. Mary's River fire burning close enough to the city that some people are finding it uncomfortable. It's really dang hard to breathe. It smells terrible. It's, it's tough stuff. It's tough stuff. The fire has grown, but because of the smoke, crews are having difficulty accurately mapping the perimeter. Fire crews now estimate the blaze has burned through more than 2,600 hectares, three times larger than it was Wednesday. The evacuation order expanding to include 15 properties north of the Kootenai number one reserve. Uh, we have what's called a peak burning period. So it's usually about 3 or 4 p.m. Uh, when the humidity is at its lowest and the temperature is at its highest. Those tend to be the conditions that are driving most of the fire behavior that we're seeing. The St. Mary's fire, an indication of a changing level of risk across the province. According to the BC Wildfire Service, conditions in the north have improved in recent days, crews gaining the upper hand on a number of fires. But the attention now shifting to the southern interior. 379 active fires are burning in BC, 80% of those caused by lightning. 
the risk of new fires increasing daily. Countless Fire Center and Southeast Fire Center will continue on a warming and drying trend. And as we saw this week with the St. Mary's River fire, uh, there is that conditions are there for larger fires in the south. The fire situation being made worse by the ongoing drought across BC. 94% of the province now at stage three drought or higher. Precipitation deficits could take months to erase. And about a third of streams in BC registering record low flows. This isn't unprecedented. We haven't seen this kind of condition before. BC is expecting help from Brazil. 100 firefighters are landing in Prince George this week, adding to an international operation, tackling one of the province's worst ever fire season. A season with several more months to go. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Let's bring in Christy Gordon now with more. Of course, rain is what we need, Christy. Any chance of that? Mm -hmm. There is. It's only for a portion of the province. Here's a look. So this is the forecast for Friday and Saturday. It looks like the central and north coast regions, as well as northern portions of the province, are expecting some rainfall. There's a chance that some isolated areas could see up to 50 millimeters, which sounds substantial. And the BC Wildfire Service says that this will be helpful in allowing them to gain some traction on their suppression efforts of the current fires burning there. But the biggest concern really is the fact that southern BC not expecting any rain right through the weekend and we are expecting the heat to continue at least for the next couple of days. Now, there's a glimmer of hope for southern BC into early next week, Sophie, but that's still days away. When I come back, though, we'll have a better look at the early part of next week and the chances of us seeing some rain. Back to you. All right. Thanks, Christy. And Vancouver Fire is asking people to be vigilant after a concerning string of arsons in the downtown east side and Chinatown. Firefighters have responded to at least 30 fires since Wednesday morning. 19 of those fires were set overnight, mostly in garbage cans and dumpsters. Officials say the fires were set in quick succession and given the current conditions, could have been much more serious. These are against the building potentially that's occupied. So that exposure is very concerning to us of having a fully involved dumpster fire, lots of heat, lots of fuel, dry conditions quickly um, sending heat, fire, smoke into a, an occupied building, which could be you know, a condo, office building, uh, things of that nature. It's unclear if it was one person or a group of people setting the fires. Vancouver police are now investigating. The Surrey Police Service says it will need to hire another 500 officers over the next three years when it takes over from the RCMP. It's anticipated more than 100 of those officers will be new recruits, but there are fears SPS will leave other Metro Vancouver forces short if their officers decide to make the switch to Surrey. Catherine Urquhart reports. Hello, good morning. Is he good? Hey, sir. How are you? It's the Vancouver Police. Sir, hi, how are you? Just checking on you, making sure you're okay. On Vancouver's downtown east side, Sergeant Ryan Irving and Constable Spencer Aktimichuk walk the beat. Right on, you guys okay? Okay, stay safe, guys. Constable Aktimichuk just joined VPD after leaving New Westminster Police. I wanted to come to Vancouver to police in the big city. There's so many opportunities at VPD. The work-life balance is amazing. It's close to home. Movement between agencies could soon spike following the province's mandate for a continued transition to Surrey Police Service. SPS needs to hire more than 500 officers. The challenge is you can't control where an officer goes. An officer has the right to police and where they want to go. And so there's a lot of movement. 
Metro Vancouver Transit Police say they've lost two officers to SPS since January, 20 since SPS started hiring. West Vancouver says it hasn't lost any officers to SPS this year, and one Delta police officer has left for SPS since January. The BC RCMP say no members have left this year and gone to SPS. How many members from to the VPD have left to join the Surrey Police Service? You know, the last count that I heard, I, I believe it's under 40, but it's something that we're keeping an eye on. It's something that's obviously a concern for all police agencies in the region. I do know that a number of members have been holding off with making a decision around going to Surrey uh, because of the uncertainty of what was going to happen in Surrey. So I think we're all here at the VPD kind of sitting back wondering now what's going to happen and whether or not there, there is some form of exodus of members to the Surrey Police Service. Now, with the uncertainty of SPS behind them, the number of officers willing to join could rise quickly especially since the union contract contains some of the most competitive wages and benefits in the country. She okay? She okay? In policing, like any other field of employment, choosing where to work is personal. Costa Malactimachuk aspires to join VPD's emergency response team. I do love the fast-paced calls, so any opportunity I can to get involved with that would be right up my alley. The movement of police officers between departments is sure to be substantial in the next few years, which could force Metro Vancouver police agencies to reach for more tax dollars in order to attract and retain officers. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And Surrey Police Service says the numbers provided by other police departments in Metro can be confusing as hiring was on pause for several months while waiting for the provincial government's final decision. Overworked and underpaid has been the successful rallying cry for unions seeking and getting change at the negotiating table over the past year. Many of those deals were negotiated, but now the province is now being accused of not holding up its end of the bargain. Richard Zussman shows us why. When BCGU members went to the picket lines a year ago, it was all about cost of living increases. But now, more than nine months after signing a new deal, some workers getting shortchanged. Our last uh, piece of information we received from the government was that there's over 9,000 open tickets right now for uh, wage adjustments that still are outstanding. The problem, complicated. In one case, a BCGU worker in healthcare still getting paid $25.90 per hour, roughly $1,006 per week before tax. The wage should have gone up to $26.07 per hour starting April 2022 for retroactive pay, or $1,049 pre-tax dollars per week, now short around $2,200. The wage was supposed to go up even more in April 2023 to $2,783 per hour, and is short an additional $1,225 before tax since April. One major frustration is health authorities now hire outside help to deal with payroll issues. We question uh, to what extent there are modern modern technologies being utilized to do this. And so what we want to see, what the union wants to see, is to see this work move back in-house into government. What do we need? More nurses! It also includes the BC Nurses Union. Some workers tens of thousands of dollars short those keeping the health care system on life support with no clear word on when they'll be properly compensated. Premier David Eby says the province is working with the health authorities to deal with the issue. 
I find it very frustrating that health authorities have uh, been challenged in getting out uh, the compensation to the nurses that we agreed to, that we promised to them, uh, but probably only a fraction as frustrated as our nurses that are seeing a rising cost of living just like every other British Columbian. They deserve the pay as quickly as possible. And Global News has also learned this is not just impacting healthcare workers. Wildland firefighters are also getting burned by the bureaucratic mess. The technical challenges preventing overtime payments and the increases to stipends and per diems. In some cases, meaning workers now on the front lines are also tens of thousands of dollars short. The bulk of their pay comes in the form of overtime. That overtime is not being paid uh, within the time limits it should. Leaving those out on the fires and in our healthcare system at the back of the line. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, it was off, then on, then off again over the course of just a few hours yesterday. But now unionized workers are back on the job at ports all along the B.C. coast. Let's bring in Keith Baldry with more on this B.C. port strike, the labor dispute. Keith, not sure what to call it right now. Where do we stand? <laughs> Yeah, some breaking news on this, Sophie, just within the last hour, and this has been encouraging. The union posted on its website that its caucus, which is sort of the subgroup of uh, negotiators, will be voting tomorrow whether or not to send the agreement that the negotiators had agreed to to the general membership for a vote. It had been rejected by the caucus, but not by the general membership. So potentially the membership will be allowed to vote on this. Uh, we'll know hopefully the results of that uh, vote tomorrow. And then if there is a, a, vote, a vote, it's going to be at a, 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 basically a membership meeting. Uh, but of course, came up with the premier again today, as he's been asked every day. All politicians across the country are being asked about the port strike. And we also caught up with John Corey of the Freight Management Association, who walks us through how long it's going to take to clear the backlog, whether the strike continues or not. There's really no reason uh, for the port not to be operating, given how close uh, uh, both sides are. Uh, we need a deal, not just for the port workers and for fairness to them, but for all British Columbians and, frankly, all Canadians. There are so many other provinces that are dependent on our port operating as well. The kind of rule of thumb with the work stoppage is every one day takes about a week to clear the supply chain. We're into day 20. Uh, nothing seems to be happening today. So if it goes up to day 25, we could be talking five months uh, you know, six months to get it back to normal. That's just around Christmas. And uh, that's, a, that's a long time to get things flowing back to normal. So again, the port remains open. It's going to be open tomorrow. It's going to be open on the weekend. Whether it goes past that, we don't know. Again, as I mentioned off the top, uh, the union's uh, caucus, which originally had rejected the deal, is going to be voting tomorrow whether or not to send the deal to uh, the, the proposed settlement to the entire membership for a vote. I think that's more of an encouraging sign rather than a discouraging one. Well, that's, that's some good news at least then. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. A new ferry service that believes it'll succeed where others have failed. It's bright, it's modern, it's brand new. Nanaimo's new Hello Private Ferry Service unveils the ships that'll zip back and forth to the mainland. Next on the News Hour. A couple planning to pedal for the next five years. Their inspiration for doing it later on the News Hour. You do have to pinch yourself sometimes that, wow, this is, this is my backyard. Plus, a B.C. couple helping to save the Ugandan savannah, one visitor at a time later. Right now, though, the owners of Vancouver's oldest microbrewery are scratching their heads trying to figure out how their mural ran afoul of the city's sign-by law. It's been there for a decade, but as Rumina Dea reports, they didn't know there was anything wrong with it 
until city officials told them it had to come down. There's a storm brewing in East Bend. A David and Goliath battle between this small business and the city of Vancouver. And would you say that it is a huge part of Storm's identity? Uh, oh, absolutely. The iconic mural at Storm Brewing, which was painted by a local artist almost a decade ago, must come down. GM Mike Crozier given the order by a bylaw officer. The mural in violation of the city's sign bylaw because it's considered advertising. Disappointed. I'm confused as well. We've had it for nearly a decade and now it's an issue. Um, there also seems to be a, a lot more other things to worry about than something like this. After a two-month-long battle, the oldest craft brewery in Vancouver accepted defeat. But then a social media post inviting customers to come down for one last picture blew up. Over 44,000 views support clearly on their side. People get their picture in front of it all the time. Tourists from all over Europe. I had a guy call me from England this morning and he was like, I can't believe we're taking down the mural. I don't think it's reasonable. I think it's ridiculous. City Councillor Peter Meisner says yeah, the city the did not issue a directive to crack down on this. So why was the brewery targeted? Was it a complaint? An overzealous bylaw officer? Meisner doesn't know. We want to be able to give Storm a reprieve so they don't have to take down their mural. We need to change the sign bylaw so it makes sense for businesses. Meisner advising council will look at amendments to the sign bylaw next week. A small victory, hopefully. For the brewery, which just wants to focus on business at its busiest time of the year. Romina Dea, Global News. People living in RVs and campers at the Squamish Walmart parking lot who were given notice to vacate the premises found out the warning was serious. Many of the vehicles were towed away today. This morning, tow trucks began removing some of the few dozen RVs that have been parked there, in some cases for weeks. Many of their owners received notices for long-term vehicles to be removed or risk being towed. Area residents had complained about the lack of facilities such as public restrooms in town and the evidence of human waste left along nearby local trails. A new much-anticipated ferry service between Nanaimo and Vancouver will finally set sail next month. The walk-on hello ferries promise downtown to downtown in 70 minutes. And as Kylie Stanton reports, it's an alternative many people might find attractive in the wake of ongoing problems at BC Ferries. Hello? There's only one way. Hello? To launch this service. What is it the Bible says all things come to those who wait? Well, the city's been waiting a very long time. Now, in a matter of weeks, Hello by Vancouver Island Ferry Company will finally set sail, connecting Vancouver Island to the Lower Mainland in just 70 minutes. They are high-speed passenger only. Uh, and they're going to go from downtown Nanaimo to downtown Vancouver and back multiple times a day. A three-tier reservation system will be in effect, with fares ranging from $40 to $60 per trip, turning what was once just a dream into reality. A lot of people in our community are like, it's never going to happen, it's never coming here, it's, it's, you know, it's not possible, um, and I think we've just proven them wrong. 
While the service is being called innovative, it's far from the first attempt. Both the Pacific hovercraft and Sea Speed lasted only three months. In the early 90s, the Royal Sea Link Express ran for just less than a year. And the Harbourlink service called it quits in 2006 after a three-year run. But there's a sense this new service won't find itself in the same boat. I think it's priced well. There are lots of people who would, would like to spend a day or an overnight in Vancouver, and it's quite convenient not to have to take your car. Of course, there's always the competition. But so far this summer, BC Ferry's track record hasn't been exactly stellar. You can see the coastal celebration here behind me. That vessel was taken out of service yet again on Wednesday for another round of repairs, which means at least another week of reduced service and cancellations. What could bode well for Hello? as many passengers here consider their options. A little more expensive, but, you know, the convenience of it, I think, will be wonderful. I'm all for it. We would have actually used it um, recently, but it's not available yet, I don't think, right? Bookings will open early next week with the first sailings scheduled for August 14th. This is where you applaud, everybody. Kelly Stanton, Global News. All right, just ahead, more controversy over a huge B.C. clear cut. Almost nothing was left standing on this plot near Prince George. How the local First Nation is defending the way they logged it. Also tonight, a popular camp for children in Ontario ordered to close after shocking revelations about the people running it. Good evening. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Patello Bridge, but do keep in mind there are delays for northbound traffic during the overnight hours for construction. Introducing the new Baskin-Robbins Ultimate Take-Home Sunday, five layers of indulgence, three great flavors, one great price, $9.99, available in the freezer section at Baskin-Robbins. Interest you in Global One at the Patello Bridge. An Ontario camp for children with disabilities has been shut down after the owner and her husband were arrested and charged with human trafficking. Global's Sean O'Shea spoke to some of the parents horrified to learn who had been running the facility that they trusted their children to. It was betrayal, devastation, and I was infuriated. In a community with an address that implies perfection, the people running a children's camp here called Beating the Odds didn't arouse the suspicion of neighbours living along this country road. The name of the town is Utopia. Didn't really have any idea what was going on. Public face of Beating the Odds is 36-year-old Amber Lee Maloney. We are all family and very excited to uh, enter into our next chapter. The camp catered to young people with autism and other needs. What parents didn't know is that her husband, 42-year-old Loriston Charles Maloney, was a registered sex offender convicted of trafficking a minor. Human trafficking, especially of children, is the most heinous of crimes. Lorelai Barrett's son with autism spent two and a half years at the camp. She was unaware of Maloney's background until this week when provincial police issued a safety advisory. Warning the public, Maloney had several prior convictions, including human trafficking of children. By Wednesday, both Maloney's were arrested and charged in a new case of trafficking a person. Loriston Charles Maloney also faces two assault charges and forcible confinement. His wife faces five charges, including administering a noxious substance. When Global News went to the couple's home, which is part of the camp, this was the reception. 
on the door a notice to immediately stop providing child care. With the Maloney's in custody, the camp is effectively shut down. Barrett spent a lot of money here. $55 an hour and it was about $58 to $6,000 a month. New programming and some awesome new funding options for our families. Some in the community came to support female staff members still living inside the family home. Everything with the children is bad enough, but I don't think people realize that there's still victims in there, like the workers themselves. Community advocates offered support to one staff member who came out and encouraged anyone with information about the trafficking allegations to come forward. The more evidence there is, the more we can keep people like this off our streets, away from our kids. Now many questions. How is a convicted sex trafficker and his wife able to run a business designed to help some of the most vulnerable young people? The justice system is actually to blame because he flew under the radar. Sean O'Shea, Global News, Utopia, Ontario. Still ahead, a clear-cut controversy north of Prince George. It just jumps out uh, in satellite imagery of uh, the area. After Global News showed the sheer scale of it, the people who logged it have come forward defending why they did it. Also coming up, a major boost to help kids go to camp. The Big Check Premier EB wrote on Vancouver Island. Good evening. Traffic is moving pretty well over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge in both directions. Just some leftover volume on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-curve. Introducing the new Baskin-Robbins Ultimate Take-Home Sunday. Five layers of indulgence, three great flavors, one great price. $9.99 available in the freezer section at Baskin-Robbins. Interest you in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. A BC First Nation is defending its logging practices after an MLA questioned a massive clear-cut north of Prince George. The chief of the McLeod Lake Indian Band says members expressed concerns after seeing the reports and he is defending the logging action. Paul Johnson reports. An enormous amount of wood was taken out of this particular area here and uh, very little left standing. Last week we told you about the massive Kerry Lake clear-cut north of Prince George. Controversial because of its size and the speed at which this primary forest was cut down. Virtually nothing of uh, the treaty lands uh, that McLeod Lake uh, holds have any primary forest remaining on them at all. They were all logged out over a relatively short period of time. The clear cut is on treaty lands of the McLeod Lake Indian Band. This week, the band's chief, Harley Chinji, released a statement about the clear-cut and his reaction to news reports about it, including the report by Global News. Chief Chinji said he was outraged by what he called the one-sidedness of the reporting. And his statement explained that the decision to clear-cut the forest was because of a spruce beetle infestation that was vast and widespread. We could move quickly and harvest this timber while it had value, the statement reads. Or we could stand still and watch it decay, lose value, and become a giant tinderbox for future wildfire. Chinji also took issue with something the area's MLA, Mike Morris, told us, that replanting had not happened. Chinji says the area has in fact been replanted with 10.5 million seedlings. He also highlighted the economic benefit, saying $137 million raised from the logging has been dedicated to band members. The statement, however, did not dispute the size of the clear-cut, roughly the size of seven Stanley Parks, 
which has raised concern not only among conservationists, but among some band members themselves about what's left of a once vast resource. Ben Parfit was the first journalist to write about the clear cut. They made a point of saying that, you know, for roughly the next hundred years, future generations of McLeod Lake Indian Band uh, members are not going to have a forest to work with anymore. Paul Johnson, Global News. Well, the province is opening up opportunities for more youth with disabilities on Vancouver Island to go to camp. Camp Shawnigan has operated for 47 years on the shores of Shawnigan Lake, about 45 minutes north of Victoria. It's getting a $7 million grant from the province to redo some of the facilities and improve their accessibility. The grant will also allow the camp to open year-round and host special events, generating revenue that will be reinvested into the camp. As you're looking around here today, I want you to envision a campground that is as beautiful as this one is, but even more universally accessible. It was what inspired me to go into healthcare, first into my nursing career and now as a family doctor. Uh, and I can trace that journey, you know, all the way back uh, to that first summer coming across the lake. Plans include 10 new two-bedroom cabins, a dormitory, community hall, and an in-ground pool. Construction on the $25 million revitalization is slated to start in the summer of 2025. And still ahead, riding five to survive. Look at the water running down the road. The grueling multi-year journey this couple is on and why it's a lot more than even they expected. Also coming up, a BC couple who surprised everyone, including themselves, becoming caretakers of the Ugandan wilderness. Well, Uganda is a long way from BC, but a Vancouver couple has found a home there in a move that surprised even them. Yeah, they've taken their love of camping and turned it into a successful tourism business in the so-called Pearl of Africa. But as Jamie Dahl shows us, they're doing a lot more than welcoming visitors. There's something there near that bush, I think. When you're doing your daily things at the camp and an elephant walks by, it's, it's pretty surreal. You do have to pinch yourself sometimes that, wow, this is, this is my backyard. On the edge of Uganda's Queen Elizabeth National Park, Vancouver's Michelle and Kevin Sutton are realizing a wild dream. You don't really think that that's what you're going to do is get into the tourism industry, but we saw the tourism, tourism industry is starting to grow, so we, um, we decided to take a leap for it. So we wanted to give people an experience of camping, but then a safari spin on it. So, you know, the classic uh, canvas tents and the, the fire outside and the stars. The little elephant camp was born. It's next level glamping at times with a front row view of some of the most spectacular creatures known to the sprawling savanna that stretches all around it. If you'd told me when I landed in Uganda, this is where I'd be sitting and this was what we'd be doing, but here we are. My favorite part of all of this is giving people an experience. The Suttons are also training and employing people from the local community and raising awareness about just how important the wildlife is here. When elephants or hippos or whatever's coming into your gardens or your crops and eating the cabbages or the maize or the elephants get into your mangoes, that's a nuisance. The people continue to be the biggest threat to animals here in Uganda, especially elephants. Despite so much awareness being raised, people still poach them for their meat and their ivory. With the economy as well, people sometimes go into to, to hunt for bushmeat. Doing so, you're also reducing on the prey that animals feed on. Okay, save antelopes. 
you're reducing the number. What happens if lions don't have anything to hunt? Leopards. So they may move into the community to kill our livestock. Then that is a conflict. When people we are angry, we also retaliate. So the trench is actually on our property, and the park is where the, the fence is. It works well. An electric fence has been put in, and the little elephant cap now acts as a buffer between the park and the community. We've seen the population of wildlife, at least here, increase, and I think we've definitely made the community understand the value of what they have in front of them, which is a national park, and that tourism can be something for them to get involved with. A business endeavor on the other side of the world they hope will also help give back and preserve vulnerable species like this king and queen of the savannah. We would like to see future generations for many years to come be able to come and see these animals. So it really is our responsibility to do what we can now. Jamie Dahl, Global News. They might get, yeah, might get some more visitors after that story runs across the network. All right, let's bring in senior meteorologist Christy Gordon once again with a look at our weather forecast and uh, hoping for any sort of precipitation that we can get, Christy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we'll time it out. I just want to quickly show you this. Uh, just in the last little while, we've had a number of thunderstorms pop up. We had a severe thunderstorm warning in place for the Lakes District. You can see thunderstorms traveling across Highway 16 right now. It now has been downgraded to a watch, meaning there are still thunderstorms in the area, as you can see, making their way across the highway, but non-severe at this time. We do have, though, a severe thunderstorm warning in place for areas just east of Merritt. There's a number of thunderstorms uh, near the Douglas Lake area. So if if you're in and around that area, make sure you're taking cover and keeping yourself safe. So here's the timeline. Tomorrow morning, we're going to see rainfall across the central and north coast region. Cloud cover across the south coast, but remaining dry for southern BC. In the afternoon, that rainfall shifts into northern BC. And then by Saturday morning, a similar pattern. We'll see that rainfall across the north and central coast. And then that will shift into northern BC. So that's sort of the idea. And those are the areas that will be impacted. But for southern BC, as I mentioned, we are expecting to remain dry. Glimmer of hope is early next week. For the south coast, the potential is there for Monday and Tuesday. For those of you in the interior, it will be a day behind. It's more so Tuesday, Wednesday, but that's still days away. So we'll refine that as we get closer. In the meantime, this is your Friday forecast. The only area with widespread smoke tomorrow will be Fort Nelson. Most other areas coming and going, just a little bit of smoke. Southern BC, it's only a slight chance of an isolated thunderstorm. It's more so northern BC that has the potential of thunderstorms tomorrow. For our region, cloud cover tomorrow morning and again Saturday morning, but we should be enjoying sunshine by the afternoon. A mix of sun and clouds Sunday, and there's the potential for some rainfall on Monday and Tuesday. Tonight's Central Windows weather window comes to you from the Kitwanga area. So this is actually along Highway 16 between, between Kitwanga and uh, New Hazleton. Barry sharing that with us, and of course you can see the layer of smoke in the valley there, but still a beautiful shot. Thanks so mm. much, Barry. Thanks, Barry. And... Hello, Barry. Very good segue, Sophie. A plethora of berries <laughs> on the show this evening. Good to see you. Good to see you guys. Uh, we're going to talk some uh, white caps. Could be a big trade coming on. We'll tell you about that. And the Lions are playing so well as a team right now. We're actually doing a story on the offensive line today. I saw the camera over in our indie. I was like, all right, this is a first for me. Yeah, the big galoots deserve the positive press after an impressive start to the season. Here are the big men talk about it when we come back. Also ahead. Just gotta keep moving. Sharing remote roads with 18 wheelers and sometimes cows. The BC couple hoping to survive a five year cycling journey.
A lot of folks will be watching the uh, Women's World mm -hmm. Cup tonight, but we start with uh, the Whitecaps with Barry. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, there are strong reports tonight that the Whitecaps have traded or are in the process of trading midfielder Julian Gressel to the Columbus crew. Gressel was acquired by the Caps just a year ago from D.C. United, but they've been unable to come to a new contract agreement for the pending free agent, and there have been rumblings. Gressel hasn't been thrilled with the lack of home fan support at B.C. Place, but nothing official yet from the Whitecaps. Canada starts the Women's World Cup tonight in less than an hour. 7.30 against Nigeria. Canada is the highest ranked team in Group B, which also includes Australia and Ireland. And this group is considered the group of death, the toughest foursome of the tournament. The top two will only make it to the knockout stage. Canada has not had a great lead up to the World Cup. They've had trouble scoring. Last year, they played two exhibition games against Nigeria. They won once and they tied the other. Canada got a chance to check out the competition earlier today when co-host Australia took on Ireland. 76,000 fans watched Steph Catley score the game-winning goal from the penalty spot. So Australia won 1-0. New Zealand, the other co-host, took on Norway. And this is a pretty goal. Jackie Hand to Hannah Wilkinson. 1-0. Kiwis also win their opener. And as mentioned, Canada, Nigeria in less than an hour. In football, you can have great playmakers at quarterback, receiver, and running back, but if they're not getting time and space to do their thing, it's pretty tough to do their thing. That's where the offensive line comes in, keeping the quarterback safe, giving him time to throw, and opening the holes for the running backs. And so far, the Lions' O-line has had a grade A season. They are definitely the unsung heroes of any successful football team. The offensive line, a group of mostly 300-pounders who do the heavy lifting at the line of scrimmage, but usually only get recognition when they get caught for a holding penalty. But this Lions O-line is getting noticed as the starting point of a very dynamic Lions offense, working together to help execute all of those great plays. Looking into the end zone, touchdown! They come to work with the same attitude every week. So when you dedicate yourself to that process and, and it matters and it means something to you, I think that sets you up to have success. There it is, yes! They deserve everything that's coming to them, you know what I'm saying? And so I, I am very comfortable back there. I know a lot last year I was kind of looking around, looking at the rush, but this year I'm not, you know, because I'm comfortable and, and uh, I respect those dudes, the, the work ethic they put in. Two things have stood out with this year's group. It's been the same unit all five games, which is rare with all of the injuries offensive linemen are subjected to. And the Lions signed center Michael Couture as a free agent in the offseason, luring the Simon Fraser product home from Winnipeg, where he played six seasons and won two Grey Cups with the Blue Bombers. Yeah, I try and bring some things that, you know, made our group in Winnipeg successful. Um, that's falling in love with the process and you know I know we're, we're about the same thing here even before I got here so all lines in that in that sense are, are very similar and players like Andrew Pearson have gone through the ranks and into a starting role after five years as a backup and practice squad player it's a tight-knit group that just keeps getting stronger on and off the field we're within like two feet of each other for like eight hours of the day uh, so if you don't like the guy you're playing with, it becomes kind of a nuisance to be around them so much because meetings, eating, you know, film, we're around each other from 7.30 to 4.30. It's, it's good to have these guys that you not only enjoy playing with, but enjoy off the field and have fun with. Hey, and a little media attention, 
Nothing wrong with that either. I saw the camera over in our Indy. I was like, all right, this is a first for me. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're just happy that uh, we, we score some points and, and the camera's on those guys. But uh, we're going to have some fun up front still, too. Well, you could have brought some food with you and then we would have really topped it off, right? But I think we'll be okay. It's always about the grub with the O-lineman. Round one of the Open Championship from Royal Liverpool, and it was South African amateur Christo Lamprecht who stole the show from the best pros in the world. A chip-in birdie here at 14 on his way to a 5-under-66 and a share of the lead. Plays his college golf in the U.S. at Georgia Tech. Shot of the day, Sepp Straka. This is Lynx golf at his finest. This is one out of 100, this one. But he picks the exact perfect line and drains the near impossible shot. Finished at even par 71. But uh, this is the hometown hero. England's Tommy Fleetwood lives less than an hour from the course, makes the birdie. He's tied for the lead at five under uh, with the uh, amateur Lamprecht, Nick Taylor and Corey Connors, both two over 73. And some baseball today, the Blue Jays and Padres San Diego won the first two games of the series. But Vladimir Guerrero Jr. gives the Jays some breathing room with this rocket solo shot to right in the seventh to make it 2-0. And then the Blue Jay bullpen does the rest. Toronto's pitching staff has kept them in the playoff hunt this season. Eric Swanson gets the ground ball. Matt Chapman with the 5-3 double play. Jays win it 4-0. And they begin a series in Seattle tomorrow as tens of thousands of Blue Jays fans will invade the Mariners' home stadium all weekend long, and that's always quite respectable to see the Jays blue invade Seattle. All right, thanks very mm -hmm. much. It's yeah, be busy at the border, Light. no doubt, right? <laughs> exactly. All right, up Nexus. Yeah, coming up, cycling to survive. A couple on an epic journey raising money for charity. This is BC is brought to you by Johnston Meyer Insurance Agencies Group. 50 years of trust in your community. A BC couple is on an epic bike tour to raise money for charity. They're cycling through parts of Canada and the U.S., but that's just the beginning of a global adventure they're on for the next five years. Jay Duran has more on This is BC. So we're 50K into the ride. Summer vacation is looking a little different this year for Kristen and P.L. Meindertzma. They're taking a little 43-day bike trip from Banff to the Mexico border. When he has an idea, it's pretty tough to to slow him down or change his mind. So I was like, sure, let's just do it. This is epic adventure number one of their plan to cycle five continents in five years, raising money for five different charities. We're only into year one and uh, it's it's a lot of work. <laughs> the ideas seem good at the time. Only crashed once. A test of endurance like nothing they've ever experienced before. We just climbed forever. Although they do have some triathlon history, they actually met at a race, so the idea for a honeymoon seemed like a perfect fit. Ten days after the wedding, they both competed in the Penticton Ironman. He's Dutch. That's that's the romance in him. <laughs> and she's Italian, so it's pretty tough. This journey has had freak weather and fluke encounters. I said to Twilight, I go, is this PL and Kristen? She goes, no. Like randomly running into their former neighbors in Montana, of all places, early into the ride. This is crazy. We were washing our bikes in a car wash because they're covered in mud. They drive by and they yell our names. They've paid for this trip and are matching part of the donations, getting some encouragement from the charities they're supporting. Go, Cycle Five! Go, Cycle Five! Providing a little boost, not knowing what each day will bring. Mama and her little cub. You try to plan and then there's always a bit of a hiccup. So 
that's just been hard. You, you hope, you kind of feel like you should be there by now, and then it's like two hours more. Here we are in Borden. Board, board in... An actual vacation may be in order after this, and then it will be back to planning the rest of the rides around the world. We don't know exactly where in Africa we're going to ride yet or where in South America, but those logistics we got to figure out yet. So that's it's going to get exciting. Jay Durant, Global News. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, like an epic bike ride like that, just email <laughs> your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. We'll have to check in on the next leg of their adventure. Yeah, five years on a bike with your partner. Saddle source. When it was his idea, right? I mean, <laughs> that's the thing. At least they have their own separate bikes and it's not a bicycle built for two because... That'd be too much. You could... <laughs> <laughs> what, are you saying? what are you saying, Gordo? Well, that, that way you could sort of ride away from each other for a little bit if you needed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Get exactly. some time by yourself. Exactly. Uh -huh. I think I that'll be it. necessary. <laughs> All right, final word on mm -hmm. the weather, Christy? Sure. So we are expecting a bit of cloud cover early tomorrow morning. We'll see it linger a little bit longer on Saturday, but both days will be enjoying sunshine. No rain in the forecast until potentially Monday. And of course, we'll refine that as we get closer. Fingers crossed. Back All to right. You. Fingers crossed for the Canadian women tonight, too. Good luck at the World Cup. All right. We'll talk to you later. Have a great night, everybody. Good night, all.